Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'll be talking to George Eaton and Lucy Fishen about the fallout from the reshuffle and how Labour might respond. Then Ian Stebman and Juliet Jakes and I talk football. Was this the best World Cup ever? We'll find out later. joined by George Eaton and Lucy Fisher to talk about the fallout from the reshuffle and what Labour's response to it should be. So George, first of all, were Labour put on the back foot by this reshuffle? Were they expecting it to be as big as it was and has their response been commensurately large? I don't think anyone was really expecting it to be as as big as it was. Um, certainly uh, very few saw the Gove move, move coming. Um, William Hague was clearly increasingly detached and had lost his passion um, but I don't think anyone expected him to stand down as Foreign Secretary before the election. I think what it has done is it's shown that David Cameron can still surprise us, that he can still take the initiative. Um, it was an impressive display of prime ministerial authority at a time when, uh, in an age when it's increasingly hard for political leaders to control the news agenda. So I think it's been a success in, in that respect and has, has shown also that the Conservatives are relentlessly focused on winning the election now. Uh, the, the reshuffle was all about putting campaigning before governing. Um, and I think there are some Labour MPs, uh, especially those fighting uh, to win marginal seats, who will worry about uh, the fact that the Conservatives under Linton Crosby have become a more disciplined team. Uh, they're less divided than they were before and um, also have huge uh, funding at their disposal. And do you agree with that, Lucy? Do you think this is a kind of, this is Crosby's reshuffle? I think that's right. Uh, And I think we can see that um, most clearly in the fact that so many Eurosceptics have joined the cabinet. Um, Clearly, Cameron doesn't want um, the party to keep banging on about Europe. Um, But but clearly, he's he's had to give in to that now because that's the the flavour. One of the things I'm most interested about, George, in this reshuffle is is the kind of ideological momentum of the Tory party. So he wrote about this in your politics column and in The Leader, this idea that, you know, the rising stars of the right are very ideologically driven. There aren't a lot of pragmatic Cameroons who you you, you hear talked about a lot. Where in Labour is the kind of ideological momentum at the moment? Mm. I think um, in in Labour it is Miliband himself who has the clearest sort of vision of what he wants to do. Um, And... 
it, the the division is over how that translates into policy and and then what kind of campaign that translate translates into but it's true that the labor appears a much less sort of diverse political animal than the conservative party where you do have uh, multiple factions sometimes it feels as if there's a so new conservative group launching all the time there are some in labor who feel that the party does lack uh intellectual vitality um i think that in some ways though that's that's simply because the left um has united around a sort of consensus that uh new labor got quite a lot of things wrong but also that there's no point in trying to resurrect the policies of the, of the 1980s and so that's why there is this center left consensus in 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 labor with with few nuances here or there over how, how radical you be or how how cautious you should be um but that is um i think that is something that you know Miliband can take comfort from because um you know, labor is just not ideologically divided in the way it was in the past and lucy do you i mean do you agree with that as well i do agree with george but i think we also have to remember that we're looking at looking at this from inside the westminster village in fact i think that while labor do have more intellectual cohesion in fact their messaging um, is poor compared to the Tories because of Linton, who's telling them all just re- keep repeating long-term economic plan. Whereas I think the voters don't really understand this intellectual stance that Labour um, are trying to to stand for. And George, where does this all leave the Lib Dems as the two parties pursue more aggressive differentiation from each other? Mm, I think for the Lib Dems, I mean, Clegg has said they don't want to be a split the difference party. Um, and so he has started talking about what they would do after 2015. Now, not even the most optimistic Lib Dem thinks you know, they'll have any chance of being a majority party, of course. You know, they'll be lucky to keep more than half their seats. But it's about s- distinguishing the party, um, not simply saying we'll be sort of nicer than the Tories and more economically responsible than Labour, but this is what we believe in. And so he's made some big speeches on the economy and education recently for that but you see with the bedroom tax uh shift they've made um they are in danger of being a split the difference party again so um on the one hand they're moving away from defending the policy as it stands and saying we would reform it so disabled adults are exempt and uh so only those who offered suitable uh, smaller homes are forced to uh pay the charge um but on the other hand, they're not calling for it to be scrapped, which is the Labour position. And Labour, Rachel Reeves has already said, Labour will look to table another motion when Parliament returns after the recess, calling for its abolition. And of course, the Lib Dems won't be able to vote for it. Um, the other thing they've said, and Lib Dem strategists have said to me recently, is they're very keen to talk up their record in government, which they don't feel is sufficiently known. So that will be their mission in the summer. They think they don't get any like, credit for the income tax um, yeah. brackets, for example. So they want to get more credit for that. They want to talk up the work Steve Webb has done at pensions, uh, the pupil premium, the work they've done on apprenticeships and skills. They hope they will get some credit for that from the voters um, because looking at their poll ratings, there are some Lib Dems who expected them to be in a better position than they are now. And they are worried that they don't seem to have been boosted by the economic recovery. That's very going to be very difficult for them because they have very few natural friends in the press. I mean, there'll be a lot of people who'd be rushing to give the Tories credit for the economic recovery, less so for the Dems. Finally, George, Milton Keynes, the glamorous mm. surrounds Milton Keynes, the uh, Labour's National Policy Forum. Are we expecting any big surprises out of that this weekend? 
Well, Labour will hope for no big surprises. Um, they are currently furiously negotiating with uh, delegates and uh, trying to reach a consensus on some of the big policy areas that are outstanding, such as rail, uh, such as uh, social care, uh, such as Trident. Um, not all of the, uh, I think the idea is to try and reach consensus in sessions and, and agreement, not to have votes. Um, obviously, the nightmare scenario for Meliband is that you do have minority positions that are passed and that will then go to conference and that will cause trouble for him. Um, the hope, I think, is that they'll be able to sort of reach a consensus with, with the union. So, for instance, on rail, uh, Labour's uh, policy, um, which has been briefed in advance, is that they will allow a state-owned company to compete with private firms for rail franchises as they come up for renewal. But there are some of the trade unions, some on the left, who would like Labour to say we will automatically return these franchises and to 66% the... of voters, I think. Yes, so, I mean, and, and this obviously bolsters their case that you say you want to be in the centre ground, you know, the centre ground is is where voters are on the left. Um, so that's that will be difficult for Miliband. But more more broadly, the big message he wants to get out is that Labour is now about big reforms, not big spending. That's an acknowledgement that the party has work to do in uh, improving its economic credibility. And it's also about wanting to show the, uh, the ambition and, and vision that, uh, that someone like John Craddus has called for. Um, and so he'll, he'll hope to get that message out in the speech he's making on Saturday. Um, and then he has quite a busy week ahead. He'll be flying to Washington on Monday, hoping for a brief meeting with Barack Obama. Um, and that coincides with the uh, speech Tony Blair is making to mark the 20th anniversary of his election as party leader. Which I suspect that Ed Miliband would be very glad to be out of the country for and <laughs> not able to uh, comment on. Well, it looks like at least a final fling of at least one more exciting week before recess, so we'll catch you up on all those developments next week. Thank you, Lucy and George. Ian Stebbin and Juliet Jakes to talk about football. Um, football! Come on, I feel our excitement building in the room already. I, as you know, um, I'm sure our regular podcast listeners will know, I'm a huge expert on football and everything related to it. Um, Juliet, you support Norwich, so yes. let's say you know nothing about football. No, tell me whether or not you think that... Uh, was this the best World Cup ever? Not the best World Cup ever. I think it was quite enjoyable. The group stages were really great. There were lots of... Um, really intriguing encounters between established powers and not so established teams there were very few teams who looked like they were there just to make up the numbers which is kind of surprising given how kind of bloated the tournament feels with with 32 sides in it i thought the group the uh, second round games were enjoyable on the whole the problem once you got to the quarterfinals the quarterfinals i thought were really flat a really poor selection of games uh, and all the interesting teams went out at that stage. You had this really kind of exciting young French team that had kind of kicked out most of the people who'd kind of brought shame on the country four years ago. Um, they couldn't really find a way through Germany and they went out. Costa Rica was so much more fun than Holland and they lost on penalties and Tim Krul just, you know, didn't behave very well. Uh, you know, that charmless, cynical Brazil team beat Colombia. Um, and Chile. And Chile, yeah. Two teams that were both fantastic. And then sort of Argentina just kind of... Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Wedged their way around a sort of, you know, uh, Belgium team that a lot was expected of who kind of did the bare minimum to get to the quarterfinals, which was a credible performance, but, you know, didn't play particularly well. I mean, what really rescued the tournament was Germany's hammering of Brazil in the semi-final. Um, I think that might be my favourite football match I've ever seen for the fact that I've never before felt the emotion of like the horror of, of a team that's ahead scoring another goal. I'm thinking, don't score another goal. Don't score another goal. <laughs> I support Norwich happens every week. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm a Wolves fan. It happens to us too. <laughs> yeah. What's the most that you've ever seen Norwich lose by? Well, um, famously, we, we lost 7-1 to Colchester United on the opening day of the third division season, I think five years ago. And uh, we're at home and we play in yellow. Uh, so much like Brazil, really. And um, <laughs> Norwich responded by stealing the Colchester manager, uh, winning the division. Uh, and then getting promoted again to the Premier League the following season. So, you know, who knows what could happen to Brazil. All they need to do is steal the German manager. I think he's still Colchester's manager. <laughs> yeah. um, well, Aston Villa, he's out now. They'll let you have him, I think. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They'll pay you to take him off his hands, I think, at the moment. And Wolves, what is the most number of goals you've seen Wolves lose by? Oh, uh, f- I... Uh... I was at Fulham, we lost 5-0, it was the season we got relegated from the Premier League two seasons ago, it was a very, uh, Fulham has this lovely quaint uh, ground, Craven Cottage, where um, it's by the river, so the wind whips in really fast and cold, even, this was a March, like a cold March day, and I was standing there with my dad, and we were just getting more and more depressed. This and is I feel, turning into a therapy session. Yeah, I, feel, I, I felt especially bad because he wanted to leave after the third goal went in. He's like, this is the point. He's like, no, no, we're staying. We're sticking well, to the end. On the therapy theme, uh, I've seen Norwich lose 6-0 at Fulham and get relegated in a must-win Ooh. game. But the last time I was there um, earlier this season for an FA Cup replay, and we went 1-0 down after 10 minutes, and I just put my head in my hands. And this has happened to me in every walk of life except football but by that point. But the steward just came up to me, put her hand on my shoulder and just said, are you all right? (laughs) (laughs) Never had that before. And you felt like doing that to a lot of the Brazilians and the fans and players in the semi-final. The the best moment really was seeing Luis Felipe Scolari, who's a a really kind of win-at-all-costs manager. He's put together some horrible teams in the past and this was one of his worst. And you just saw him when Germany went 2-0 up, sort of turn around to his assistant and just say, oh, this isn't going right well, what should we do? And by the time they sort of <laughs> finished the conversation, they're 5-0 down. That was the it most was astonishing thing about that game, was that the fact that the goals all came within... I mean, literally, there must have been people who went out for a cup of tea and went, what? Mm. Hang on a minute, what? I yeah. was in a Brazilian bar in oh. uh, Pimlico, and you know the Brazilian anthem ends kind of a cappella. It was, it was incredible. It's this kind of moment where you've got the players and the fans in the stadium, and I'm sure people watching in bars and... Things all over the world singing along with the, the anthem. It's a really powerful moment. And I thought, well, I don't like this Brazil team. But having just witnessed that moment, I, I kind of would like to see them win now. But then you kind of watch them play and you're like, no, use it awful. Go home. Taking <laughs> <laughs> a harsh line there. Um, what have we learned about football? There's a big question, Ian, from the World Cup. Well, something I find quite interesting is this idea, the entire debate over whether it's the best World Cup ever. Because um, me being the, the young age I am. Uh, the earliest World Cup I remember is 94 in the US and even barely the one I remember properly is 98. Um, and I do wonder how many people are saying this is the best or worst or whatever World Cup ever have actually 
seen everyone that was televised really um it does seem i mean i i think it was fantastically amazing value and the best international tournament of any kind including euros or confederation cups or what have you since probably i don't know 2000 i think yeah euro 2000 yeah um yeah. I got very excited about Germany. We had to do some sorting up for the Sunday politics about football. So I've, like, there was me in an intensive Wikipedia session <laughs> uh, the night before. But we had a great piece last year by um, by a writer, a football writer, about the idea about what, what Germany, what we can learn from the way that Germany has yes, structured its club that. system, mm. um, which I thought was really fascinating. So there are two things. There's this fan ownership model, a 50 plus one system, so that fans always have the controlling vote. You can't be kind of bought out by somebody and just turned into a cash machine. And also the fact that they put a huge amount into youth training. I mean, Juliet, can you ever see England adopting a similar system? It's hard to see widespread fan ownership in England. I think there's only one fan-owned team in the Football League at the moment, which is Portsmouth, who went through a number of kind of bizarre uh, and kind of terrifying changes of ownership. David Conn wrote a really good piece about it with The Guardian a couple mm. of years ago, which I didn't understand. One of these owners may not even have existed. There's only kind of one known photo of him, a guy called Ali Al-Faraj. Uh, very little <laughs> is, is known about him, apart from that he wears a baseball cap. Uh, it's a bit like William Haig. And, um, I think he definitely existed. I think. Didn't <laughs> him for the last yeah, I've yeah. heard that voice. And um, so Portsmouth, kind of after just kind of years of bankruptcy, more than one spell of administration, a uh, very quick drop from the top division to the bottom one, are now fan-owned. Uh, otherwise, you look through substantive portions of the Premier League and the Championship, which you know, is division below, uh, a lot of clubs are just owned by kind of um, European or Middle Eastern oligarchs now. Um, uh, the takeover at Leeds United recently, Mishimo Cellino, is very interesting. He had a kind of legal situation. Um, I can't remember exactly what, so I'll be careful what I say about that. But... Um, there was some debate as to whether or not he'd be allowed to take over Leeds United. In the end, he was. Um, the fit and proper uh, person test for owning football clubs in this country is notoriously lax. Uh, famously, Manchester City being taken over by Thatch and Shinawatra, the former Thai prime minister who was wanted for kind of numerous human rights offences at the time. <laughs> yeah, and, and money laundering. Quite happy so, yeah. to turn up at Manchester City and, and own them. Um, so I can't see fan ownership for a while. I mean, there's a lot of hand-wringing, isn't there, about the way that youngsters are trained in, in this country. We had a fantastic piece by um, um, Gary Lineker in the Russell Brangist, yes. in which he said two things. First of all, the pushy parents are ruining because they sort of shout, like, take out his legs <laughs> at this sort of seven-year-old yeah. who's running up and down, and the fact that they force them to play on full-size pitches. Mm, so everybody mm. just learns how to hoof it really far. And actually, we never get the kind of messy style people who are just much nippier. Um Look at me, I'm talking about football. Yeah, this is that you must be very, very cogently. <laughs> yes. well, no. yeah, what, is there anything else you think that England could do or might do and after our slightly ignominious exit? I, I do find it funny that um, four years ago everyone was saying we must copy the Spanish model, now everyone's saying we must copy the German <laughs> model. And, and But funnily enough, I mean, those two countries do have kind of a similar base, which is that they just have a, an order of magnitude more coaches per young player than the English system does. Um, and they don't have those kind of prejudices against small pl uh, players that the English mm. system has. And, um, and actually, that's something that did come out of the, um, the World Cup as well. So this German team is really impressive, but I, I don't think it's anything like the Spanish team that was at its peak four years ago. And, I mean, some people find that 
uh, tiki taki kind of boring. Um, I, Me included. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I enjoyed it, um, that kind of thing. But I know there's a bit of that, but it was it was very much a, a dominant philosophy that you knew exactly, everyone in that player knew exactly what they were doing. Whereas the German team that just won the World Cup did it more, um, almost playing like a Premier League team. Very fast, a lot of wide play, uh, a lot of uh, rapid counter-attacking. And that system doesn't really rely upon intimate knowledge of one particular style. It just relies on just good coaching from a young age and an ability to be uh, flexible. So may- maybe saying, um, you know, copying the German system is more realistic because well, it just uh, means making the, Na- the England team play like Manchester right, I mean, United. Also, the sort of Spanish tiki-taka model, um, I mean, yeah, t- four years ago, Spain closest to being unbeatable mm. as any international team I've seen. I mean, they actually did lose one game in that tournament. Yeah, uh, um, They went on something like a 30-game winning streak yeah, as well. Yeah, it was an astonishing side. length of time unbeaten. Um, but the big tactical change I think we saw in this World Cup is to sort of counter the tiki-taka model is players who can break quickly from mm. midfield, like France had Pogba, um, Germany had Müller, Holland had Robben... Um, and a lot of the better sides had somebody who could do that. And that's the way to, to play through a team that just kind of keeps possession is, is find mm. somebody who can win the ball and very quickly um, quickly hit them on the break. So I think we're seeing more of that kind of football, which I think is more suited to England. Um, but there are like a worrying dearth of young players. I mean, yeah. I can't think of any kind of young English players coming through There's... at the moment for whom I have genuinely high hopes. I guess Raheem Sterling. Raheem Sterling is the obvious one because he's still uh, the 18, I think. Uh, I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, but we really don't, I mean, uh, Joe Hart's going to be in goal for like another decade probably because that's how goalkeepers work. Yeah. But the, and the, the defence is the, um, at the moment and for the future looks mediocre. Oh, the midfield at the moment looks um... mediocre and is going to stay mediocre. The, the attack, maybe there's some good Sturridge, Rooney, and Sterling's yeah. not a bad front three. I don't. Think, but there's just but... It, it. It does look like we, um, yeah, there was the golden generation of Gerrard and Lampard and whatever that never played together well, really, and never really achieved. All Very the glad they're going. Yeah, but I'm, <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, I didn't want Gerrard or Lampard to be going to Brazil. Frankly, well, they wouldn't um, be if there were better younger players coming through. I don't think. Point, I mean, yeah. I don't blame Hodgson for picking them or them for going. Yeah. Well, on that really depressing note that all our players who are retiring are rubbish and all the people who are coming through are rubbish Even as well. Worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll say thank you very much to Ian and Julia. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Morn. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.